How do the recent actions of the FTC affect the way companies engage in marketing? I'm Po Yi, a partner in Manette's advertising marketing and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. In the past 12 months, we've seen a flurry of activities from the Federal Trade Commission. In addition to the various enforcement actions announced by the FTC, the commission has been busy issuing notice of proposed rulemaking and advance notice of proposed rulemaking, as well as compliance guidance in several important areas that have significant consequences for marketers. In today's episode, I'm joined by Bez Stern, my new partner in our consumer protection and advertising practice group, to discuss some of the recent actions taken by the FTC and what that means for marketers. Bez is a seasoned litigator who represents clients in a wide range of consumer protection and advertising matters in proceedings before the FTC, as well as the National Advertising Division, or the NAD, and the National Advertising Review Board of BBB National Partners. Bez, welcome to Manat and to our advertising podcast. I'm looking forward to having you as a regular guest here. Great to be here. The FTC surprised many of us when it proposed a new rule banning non-compete clauses in early January which generated a lot of debate among legal practitioners due to the potential far-reaching consequences of the proposed rule, as well as the authority upon which the FTC based its action. What's at stake here? Chair Khan maintains a broad position on the scope of Section 5 authority. In a policy statement issued in November, Khan, as well as Commissioner Bedoya, argue that historically, the FTC has the right to define the extent of Section 5, and boy, have they defined it broadly. According to the current commission, the FTC may utilize Section 5 to prosecute both direct and indirect consumer harms. This is a major historical expansion, one which Commissioner Wilson, the lone Republican on the commission, emphasizes in her dissent. The FTC's recent non-compete notice of proposed rulemaking illustrates the breadth of the Commission's new understanding of its Section 5 authority. Briefly, the NOPR, if adopted, will prohibit non-competes, full stop. The Commission argues that non-competes stifle innovation and productivity and thus fall under its newly defined Section 5 authority. I found the dissent by Commissioner Wilson to be super interesting because it seemed to be providing a roadmap for challenging the FTC's authority for the rule. What surprised me the most about the proposed rule is the breadth of the ban on non-compete clauses, including in contrast with independent contractors. That's right, Poe. The effect on independent contractors, including influencers and talent, as well as agency personnel, is really interesting here. And it follows the earlier FTC policy statement on gig economy workers, which promised more protections for gig workers. Non-competes will be taken especially seriously for these groups by the FTC. I agree. The FTC has been paying a lot of attention to the gig economy recently, and the commission may have had gig economy workers in mind when writing the proposed rule to include independent contractors in the definition of workers covered by the ban. But the ban is so sweeping. I recognize that the commission is seeking comments on potential alternative approaches to a categorical ban, including applying different standards based on a worker's job function, occupation, and or earnings. So the final rule could look substantially different after the commission has processed all the comments. Plus, it's likely that the proposed rule will face numerous legal challenges as intimated by Commissioner Wilson in her dissent. So what should companies do now during this waiting period, in addition to submitting comments, if it makes sense? I think there's a couple of things that companies need to do to get ready for these potential changes. 
First and foremost, companies need to be ready to replace non-competes with strong non-solicitation and confidentiality agreements, which the proposed rule explicitly excludes from its purview. Companies should also be ready for more proposed rules from the FTC aimed at protecting employees and independent contractors. This world is moving really fast as the FTC sees the clock running on the Biden administration's first term. It's very important to stay informed on these issues as they are very fluid and proposed rules are coming out fast and furious. I agree that companies should keep a close watch on the FTC's actions. But for now, on the issue of non-compete clauses, I do want to emphasize that companies do not need to make immediate changes to their agreements with employees and external talent. That's completely right. Companies don't need to be making changes, and they certainly shouldn't be taking non-competes out of their agreements at this time. They do need to be prepared, though. And it would be a good idea to start ramping up on those non-solicitation agreements. Of course, there are existing state laws that restrict or ban the use of non-compete clauses in employment contracts. That's right, and especially California comes to mind. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let's discuss another area of focus for the FTC, consumer reviews. Last May, the FTC issued proposed updates to its decades-old endorsement guides, which we covered in a previous episode of this podcast. Many of the updates are clarification on existing sections and principles, but the FTC also added one entirely new section on consumer reviews. Then in October of last year, the FTC issued advance notice of proposed rulemaking on fake reviews and deceptive endorsements. What are some of the enforcement actions that the FTC has taken in the past 12 months that highlight the commission's increasing concerns and position on consumer reviews? That's a great question, and it's really astute. The FTC has actually initiated a number of actions in this relatively novel space. I'll briefly talk about two of them. In Fashion Nova, the FTC initiated and settled an action for over $4 million in which the commission alleged that the company had removed negative reviews. In cases such as these, the FTC and the National Advertising Division have already been finding the advertising false and misleading, even before the proposed updates to the endorsement guides. And in Roomster, a case that's currently pending in the Southern District of New York, the FTC partnered with a number of state attorney generals in a complaint against both the company Roomster and many of its executives. The complaint asserts that Roomster inundated the internet with tens of thousands of fake positive reviews and is seeking millions of dollars in civil penalties. To me, posting fake reviews and suppressing negative reviews are intuitively problematic and they signal deceptive behavior. And the FTC has already proposed specific updates to the endorsement guides that address such behavior relating to consumer and product reviews. What then is the purpose of the subsequent advance notice of proposed rulemaking on these deceptive practices? Well, the endorsement guides are just that. They're guides. They're not binding. And importantly, the FTC can't use them to go after companies for monetary damages, especially after the Supreme Court in the AMG case rules that the FTC doesn't have equitable monetary relief authority under Section 13B of the Act. It's important for the FTC to create rules here so they can go after these companies for monetary or equitable relief. Chair Khan's statement on the proposed rule says a lot about where the FTC is going. She said reviews are essential, but it's hard to know when they can be trusted. Precisely because of the importance of reviews, firms can face powerful incentives to gain the system. As our discussion of Roomster and Fashion Nova shows, the FTC is already de facto considering games reviews false and misleading and has settled cases as such. 
The proposed rule will codify this decision and allow the FTC to seek monetary civil penalties without having to partner with state attorney general. Yes, this is definitely consistent with other actions that the FTC has taken since the Supreme Court's decision on the AMG case. Another important topic I'd like to discuss with you today is ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. ESG was one of the hottest themes in 2022 and will probably continue to be a major area of focus in Washington, Wall Street, corporate boardrooms, and certainly in legal circles. The FTC's proposed updates to the Green Guides reflects the increasing importance of ESG in advertising as well, particularly relating to the environmental aspect of ESG. What are some of the highlights of the proposed updates? Yeah, that's a great question. And it should be noted that the Green Guides are updated once every decade. The last one was updated in 2012. And there's a lot that's gone on in the ESG space since then. The new focus on the Green Guides is really on substantiating environmental claims, particularly regarding product recyclability and environmental friendliness. Another important aspect of the Green Guides is the FTC's trying to define the definition of sustainability. That's a really important buzzword that it's really hard to pin down what its meaning is. The FTC has also initiated a number of enforcement actions in this space. There have been a number of bamboo cases where the FTC has gone after companies for claiming that the products were made with bamboo when they were actually made with synthetic materials. And the FTC is taking a broad stance here. The green guides are just guidance and do not have the force of law like the endorsement guides. But they do effectively establish industry standards for making environmental claims. In fact, many states, including California, have either expressly codified the Green Guides into state law or have incorporated some elements of the Green Guides into state law. So any changes that the FTC makes to the Green Guides will have broad implications, especially in those states that have codified the Green Guides into state law. That's completely right. The states certainly look to the FTC generally and specifically in the case of the Green Guides for guidance. In fact, the FTC is wondering whether they should codify the Green Guides themselves into regulatory law. One of the questions in the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking asks just that. In addition to the FTC, we also have a robust self-regulatory process in the advertising industry through the NAD. The NAD has been quite active in the ESG space, venturing beyond just environmental claims. What can you tell us about the NAD's actions related to ESG claims? So the NAD, again, as you said, it's a really wonderful self-regulatory body. And companies can bring claims attacking other companies' advertising, but the NAD can also bring claims on its own. And the NAD recently announced that it will monitor itself advertisers for ESG-related issues, including particularly racial and environmental claims. And the self-regulatory body is putting its money where its mouth is having initiated ESG actions against a number of companies and other groups, including trade associations, making ESG claims, including racial justice claims and environmentally friendly claims and recyclability claims. Do you see the FTC also expanding its enforcement actions to include racial justice and other claims that fall under the ESG umbrella outside of environmental claims? It may. I mean, th that's more of a hot button issue in Washington, D.C. than it is at the NAD. But, you know, with this FTC, it's certainly possible. I do think that the FTC's Section 5 authority and the general advertising principles established by the FTC are probably sufficient to go after companies who are making misleading claims about social issues as well. 
Oh, absolutely. And it would definitely fall under the newly expanded understanding of Section 5 authority. 2023 certainly promises to be a busy year for the FTC, and we will be following the developments closely. Before we end this episode, I'd like to ask you to provide a few tips for marketers operating in this very uncertain world against the backdrop of a hyperactive regulator. Yeah, that's a great question, and hyperactive is exactly right. First, it's important that companies review their current employee handbooks and other employee agreements for the non-compete language. While this language doesn't need to be changed at this time, it's important to know that it might need to be changed in the future. In the ESG space, it's very important for companies to ensure that any ESG-related claims have a provable factual basis. NAD and the FTC are both on the lookout for these types of claims right now. Finally, companies should ensure that all consumer reviews are truthful and accurate. And if consumer reviews are compensated in any way, even non-monetarily, they must clearly indicate so. Thank you, Bez, for joining me and taking the time to discuss the FTC's recent actions and what they mean for marketers. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. To learn more about the FTC's proposed rule banning non-competes, please find a recent Manat webinar from our antitrust and employment law attorneys available for download now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. 